Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're beginning our coverage of the second novella in The Fifth Head of Cerberus, this one called A Story by John V. Marsh. We're going to get through this one a little more quickly than we did the first novella. We'll have four episodes in which we go through the story, and then a fifth episode in which we have a wrap-up discussion. This episode, however, we're not going to cover very much ground. We're doing just the first five pages. That's pages 85 to 90 of the Orb edition. That's right. I really enjoyed the first five pages of this story as I read them, and it's so different from Fifth Head of Cerberus. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about exactly what kind of story this is and what we're supposed to be learning about the universe that Fifth Head is set in, about these two planets, or about what the greater problems of these novels are raising in our discussion. But as I said, though it's a a major change, there's something enjoyable about these pages in my mind. Yeah, I think this is a really beautiful story. It's certainly gorgeously written, even if it does feel like an extreme departure from the story that precedes it. I'm excited to get into it. So let's just do it. Like the fifth head of Cerberus before it, a story by John V. Marsh opens with an epigram. And the epigram is this. If you want to possess all, you must desire nothing. If you want to become all, you must desire to be nothing. If you want to know all, you must desire to know nothing. For if you desire to possess anything, you cannot possess God as your only treasure. These lines come from Book 1 of Ascent of Mount Carmel by St. John of the Cross, who was a Carmelite friar, a mystic, a theologian, and all-around important figure of the Catholic Reformation. And given that we haven't even started the story yet, we won't want to dwell on these lines too much here. But St. John of the Cross does have a lot to say about how souls go about becoming united with God. And we've seen how important souls are to the first novella, so I think we're going to be talking about this at some point. Yeah, we'll definitely be going a little more in depth in our discussion about this section of the story. It's not exactly clear to me how this epigram connects to the larger story, as in Fifth Head, that epigram by Samuel Taylor Coleridge connected to the larger story. It was immediately apparent. And I think we'll get some more clarity as we discuss the nature of mysticism and of St. John of the Cross and this first book of the ascent of Mount Carmel. I love these lines. I'm a big fan of the Christian mystics, so I kind of can't wait till we get to it. Yeah, it's gonna be a lot of fun. We've talked about the Catholic Reformation before on the show, though it's been almost a year, really, since we've done the Scarecrow's Boy by Michael Swanwick. But the intellectual flowering of the Catholic Reformation was very important when we talked about that episode as well. I'm excited to get back into it here in uh, the fifth head of Cerberus. Exactly. And I also want to mention that St. John of the Cross was a major literary figure in Spain as well. He was not just respected as a member of the Counter-Reformation or as a mystic. He was sainted you know, within 100 years of his death, and his books have really stood the test of time and become foundational in Spanish literature. Yeah, if it hadn't been for Cervantes, St. John of the Cross would really be the Spanish Shakespeare, I think, in terms of literary importance. Well, following this epigram, the story begins without any mention of John V. Marsh and without any indication that there are, perhaps, multiple levels of narrative at play. The only indication we have of that so far is that this is what the title of the novella is. The story opens with a girl named Cedar Branches Waving. She lives in the country of sliding stones where the years are longer. When Cedar Branches Waving reaches puberty, her mother takes her to the place where men are born and there, she gives birth to two boys. 
The first comes just at dawn and is accompanied by, and, and this is a gorgeous phrase, a cold wind out of the eye of the first light across the mountains. He is, of course, called John, which only signifies a man, since all boy children are named John. But because of this wind, she gives him the second name of East Wind. The second son is a breech birth, and because his feet hit the ground, she calls him John Sandwalker. And if we needed any more evidence that George Lucas read some Gene Wolfe before writing Star Wars, here it is. My notes for this line, which is because his feet hit the ground, his mother called him John Sandwalker, is just, come on, George Lucas. <laughs> because it's outrageous. I mean, he just stole this from, from Gene Wolfe. He was reading a lot of Gene Wolfe. I would not actually ever have assumed that or predicted that, but I do feel like the evidence is actually kind of mounting. Yeah, I agree. What I love about this first section of the story is our introduction into the world right off the bat. As you said, there is a kind of meta-textual game being played, which again, we'll go into in our discussion. We get a little bit about the naming conventions of the world. The women seem to be named just for natural goings-on in their environment without reference to the gender, but the men are called out by gender. They all get the name John. We should note, of course, the author of this is John V. Marsh, and that the epigram is from St. John of the Cross. We learn also that the years are longer here. And because we're not getting any comparison to anything else, that's something that's clearly left out by the author of this story. We're meant to draw a comparison. What are the years longer than? This is a question maybe that we'll see answered throughout the course of this text, though we saw something similar in St. Croix as well. And it seemed like there, the natural comparison was Earth, but I'm not sure if that's the case in this story. Another thing that is kind of puzzling is that it's not clear that men are necessary in terms of partnership for children to be born. The story just points out that it came to her, and Cedar Branch's waving's water breaks, and then her mother takes her to the place where she's to give birth. And so we're not seeing any male participation in this at all. I think we'll have some clarity around this when we get to the discussion. Yeah, that's interesting that you read that as as the water breaking. We should note that what Wolf describes here is liquid on the thighs of this young woman. And he prefaces that with when her time came. You inferred that this was her water breaking with the pregnancy. I thought this was the advent of adulthood manifesting through menstruation. But like you, because of that... I inferred that there might not be another person actually involved in the creation of new life with whoever these people are, that she did not have to have sex with another person in order to become pregnant. Yeah, I think it could go both ways. And it could be the case that this menstruation or the time that comes to them is synonymous with pregnancy, in which case we have the interest of John V. Marsh that he reveals in Fifth Head of parthenogenesis of birth without a male counterpart, basically. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. And I'm really excited to see if we get more of that as the story progresses. Well, at this point, exhausted from giving birth, Cedar Branch's waving holds these two boys to her breasts, and she lays back against the cold sand. The wolf has this gorgeous description of her black hair making a dark halo behind her head, which I think we're going to want to unpack at some point. But for now, now that the babies are fed... They have to be washed in the river. So they go to the river where her mother is drowned in the shallows and Eastwind is taken from her. Yeah, this whole sentence at the end of this section, I want to read it because to me, it, it leaves a lot open to interpretation. And it asks 
a lot of questions or maybe even response to some questions or interpretations of this culture that I think are raised in Fifth Head of Cerberus. And I say that because I think we can safely say that this is a story about the abos of St. Anne, and I don't think we need to belabor that, but I think we need, do need to make that clear in order to get through the discussion. Though, you know, if there's a happy reversal there, we'll have to deal with that when it comes. <laughs> so here's the sentence at the end of the second section of this story. The sun was high by the time they reached the river, and there, Cedar Branches Waving's mother was drowned in the shallows, and Eastwind taken from her. So the first thing is, is this some sort of ritual that there are no grandmothers, that once a mother gives birth to a child, the grandmother is somehow ritually drowned? Maybe. The second question is, who is Eastwind taken from? Is Eastwind taken from cedar branches waving and drowned with the grandmother because maybe there can be only one child? Or is the cedar branches waving take Eastwind from the grandmother who's holding the boys? Or does cedar branches waving take Eastwind back from the grandmother who is to be drowned here? So there's a lot of contention here in this text for me about what's actually going on. And I think it only gets worse as we get into the next three pages because there's some very strange things going on with the relationship between these two brothers. We should know again that this is another story about two brothers so far. And in this story, we have a mother with potentially no father. And the imagery we get of the mother is not as clearly kind of classically hideous as the imagery of the father in Fifth Head. But we do have this image of a dark halo, which is just a sign of darkness. It's not a good omen. I really like your reading of Wolf's manipulation of the passive voice, which of course is something I tell my students never to do because it obscures agency. It hides who's actually doing the action. It's in fact a way for us to not admit that we've done something wrong, for example. But here, I kind of overlooked the passivity and, and took this to be an accident, that her mother accidentally drowns in the shallows. She's the one who's holding Eastwind, and because, I don't know, she trips and falls or something like that, Eastwind now is in the river, and the river carries him away. But I love your reading that, no, that's not what's happening at all, that there are other people at the river who are going to engage in the traditional, the ritual sacrifice, perhaps, of the grandmother and perhaps, as you suggest, an excess child, or perhaps they're always born as twins and you sacrifice one of them. I think that will be very interesting. I'm interested to see where that goes. We're going to get some a little bit here, even in this section, but I think that will be really interesting to keep in mind as we go on. Yeah, this really is one of two passages that puzzle me in just the first five pages of this story. All of this has been something of a birth of the hero prologue stories. We're going to fast forward now in this new section. Sandwalker is 13 and nearly as tall as a man. We get a note here again that the years of his world where the ships turned back were long years. And I think this is a concrete indication that we're perhaps not on Earth and that we should, of course, recall that San Croix has years that are longer than Earth's years were. So even though we're taking it kind of as given that this is St. Anne, there is textual evidence that Wolf is building in just in case we need to be convinced, or if for some strange reason you're reading this story standalone. I think this story as a standalone does appear in a collection edited by Kim Stanley Robinson, like kind of the New Ecology or something like that. So there may be people who have just encountered this by itself and just scratched their head the whole time. Yeah, that does not seem like the best way to go about encountering this story. Well, Sandwalker is a food bringer in his community, but he also dreams strange dreams. 
When he is almost 14, his mother and old bloody finger and flying feet send him to the priest. Going to the priest involves a long walk in the wide, high country where the cliffs rise like banks of dark cloud and all living things are unimportant beside the wind, the sun, the dust, the sand, and the stones. On the fifth day, Sandwalker reaches the gorge of Thunder Always, where the priest lives. Sandwalker has to lower himself down a waterfall, which is described in precisely the same vocabulary as his breech birth had been. But here, where the sky is a slot of purple no wider than a finger, and sprinkled with day stars, he finds the priest's cave. The section, again, is full of other world-building details. We have the fact that Sandwalker dreams strange dreams. I think we're going to get a little bit more about that and maybe why that's the case. We get a reference to these other men, I think, in, in this community, Bloody Finger and Flying Feet. And this reveals to us the naming convention that men are mostly called by their natural names, not John. It's just nobody needs to be called John in this world. And we also get this reinforcement that he is a food catcher. As he's on his journey, he catches rock mice and leaves them almost his sacrifices around him while he sleeps. And in the morning, sometimes they're gone, which means there's some predatory creature. But to me, this indicates that it's some sort of carrion creature. And he doesn't want to be mistaken for dead while he sleeps. So he protects himself with these creatures as well. And so it's a sacrifice, maybe. It is also a means of self-protection. And it also might be food for him if there's still some left over when he wakes up. It's wonderful the depth to which you can draw from this passage with so little information given. I think there's a lot of Wolf's mastery on display in this story so far. The other thing we get is that he's able to kill a Thane pheasant, which is not a real animal as far as I can tell. But we get this first sense that there's an animal that's a, a kind of pretend version of an animal. I don't know why it would be called a Thane pheasant. Is there a real pheasant? Is this an imitator of that? It's really unclear what this title is meant to mean on this world because we have no referent for it. We only have the fake as the thing. The real thing isn't present in the story. I like the Thunder Always language. It reminds me of the opening of Trip Trap a lot. And I think Wolf is returning to Trip Trap to draw a lot on that story as well. His interest in kind of amateur anthropology and imagining how a future anthropologist would describe some sort of alien culture. It's a lot of fun. And I love the description of us getting into this priest's cave. Wolf's language here is so descriptive. He describes the waterfall. You know, Thunder Always is obviously the waterfall. And uh, he describes Sandwalker as being wet with the spray and the dust ran from his body. We're going to get more about the priest's cave here and what's going on with this priest. But just getting into the cave, I think, is a wonderful short adventure that Wolf has written for us. Yeah, I'm really restraining myself here to not just read the text to our audience because, of course, I love the nature writing so much. And I absolutely love the the detail that Wolf is packing here, not just the descriptions of the nature, but what it is really like to trek for five days across actual wilderness. I will say that this is a really great survival strategy, perhaps, on St. Anne to leave dead animals around you. But if you actually are hiking out in grizzly bear country or wolf country or mountain lion country... Uh, don't put dead animals anywhere near your campsite. Right. St. Anne seems like a pretty inhospitable planet so far as we're told. The people really live in difficult conditions. It's rock country. It's not the lush Edenic paradise that maybe we intuited it might be from Fithet. 
Right, by virtue of it being described as green. And in fact, we even get descriptions of how lush and watery St. Anne is. And we're going to learn more about the ecology of this world as we go. Well, now that he's in the cave, Sandwalker finds the place where prospective students leave food offerings for the priest. And he sets down his feigned pheasant among the dry bones of earlier offerings. He retreats to the cave mouth and lays down at the appointed spot. And when he sleeps... He dreams, but the ghost of the priest does not come into his dreams. In his dream, his bed is a raft of rushes floating in a few inches of water. Around him stands a circle of immense trees, their bark white like sycamores. But Sandwalker doesn't really look at them, for the circle is so vast that the trees are really only the horizon, just barely preventing the dome of the sky from touching earth. He is changed, but in some way that he cannot define. His limbs are longer and softer, but he doesn't move them. He stares at the sky, and he feels as if he is falling into it. The raft rocks to the beating of his heart. It is his 14th birthday, and the constellations occupy precisely the positions they had held on the night of his birth. And we learn that his world has a sister world, a blue world, which I think we can just safely infer is San Croix. This then, of course, as we've said, has to be the green planet of St. Anne. I think here is really the definitive indication that that's what's going on. Well, we also learn the names of some constellations, as well as some names of other planets in this system. And I think these are all really very interesting. The constellations are the Shadow Child, Five Flowers, Seen Seed, Valley of Milk, and Lost Wishes. And there is also the Waterfall, which roars silently across the sky, which we, of course, call the Milky Way. The planets in this system are called the Snow Woman, Swift, and Dead Man. I just really love these names. I think that they suggest an awful lot about the people who created them and the way that they interact with their environment and the way they perceive their environment and their place in it. And I think we'll want to unpack these. We will definitely be unpacking this quite a bit. I think this is a, a culture who recognizes the value of dreams and the value of astrology, of being guided by the night sky in some way. I just, I love this section so much. And as I said, we didn't mention it yet. Eastwind is the one who kind of wakes up in this dream in a strange way. But this raft of rushes floating in a few inches of water, the possibility that Eastwind was carried away somehow in the current, all of this is evocative of the story of Moses. So again, we're having two brothers, one who we're not sure of the character of, honestly, at this point, not as sure as we were of the narrator of Fifth Head, and one who is, I think, somehow connected to a patriarch of the Old Testament. Right. This clear parallel with Moses' imagery is the reason that I took the incident, the drowning at the river to be accidental because for that to line up with the Moses imagery here, that baby has to be floating down that river. Right. And I'm sure after these five pages, we're going to find out. And maybe we're driving our listeners not to have read ahead, but this is where we are today. Yeah, right. Well, let's get into the, the next bit of this. As you already said, we've come now to some narrative trickery, or really, we should say some more narrative trickery. There's a lot of it going on here. We have, up to this point, been narrating the experience of Sandwalker, but without a section break or any clue, we do get a switch somewhere in this section. There is merely a paragraph break, and then Wolf writes, Feet splashed close to his head. Eastwind sat up, by long practice, imparting only the slightest motion to the tiny raft. Eastwind's teacher is there. He's a star walker, and his name is Last Voice, and 
he wants to know what Eastwind has learned. And the answer is not as much as he wished. And he knows that he deserves to be beaten for having fallen asleep. Last voice here calls him his best acolyte and gives him, uh, I guess what we're meant to infer is a pretty light sentence. In the blue light of the rising sister world of San Croix, we get a physical description of Last Voice. He is very tall, and he has a bloodless face. He grows only a few wisps of beard, but, as ritual requires, these are plucked out of his face on a daily basis, and the sides of his head have been seared with brands kindled in the flows of the mountains of manhood, uh, a fantastic name for what presumably is a volcano. This maiming gives him a, a stiffened crest of thick hair, a, a mohawk of sorts. Eastwind tells his teacher that he has dreamed again that he is a hillman. In the dream, he went to the source of the river where he was to receive an oracle in a sacred cave. I think we can safely, maybe safely say that Eastwind and Sandwalker have been dreaming each other's reality. Eastwind apologizes for not walking among the stars as Last Voice had hoped. Last Voice ignores this apology and merely asks what the stars tell Eastwind of the Enterprise tomorrow. Will he blow the conch? And this section ends with Eastwind saying merely, as my master says. Again, just the end of this section emphasizes the importance of astrology to this culture, though now we have this split culture represented by these twins. There are two cultures that are distinct on this planet. Because of the way that this section is written with the switch in narrative perspective of one brother waking up in the other brother's dream or dreaming the other brother's reality, as you put it, and the way that Wolf talks about the ghost of the priest not coming into his dreams. There's a part of me that wants to think there's some physical reality and some spiritual reality at play here. That when Sandwalker falls asleep, that is when Eastwind can wake in the realm that he is participating in. And it might be this spiritual realm. And though he's the best acolyte of Last Voice, Eastwind, I mean here, maybe because he's such a great dreamer, and that is something that this culture, this maybe spiritual reality requires, he only dreams of the physical world, and that's a problem. And he's also punished for sleeping. Maybe at the same time Sandwalker is sleeping, but we don't know exactly what's going on here. Is one sleeping while the other's awake? Do they wake up in one another's realities in some way? There's just a lot going on here that I think we're going to have to wait a little while to understand. But what we do know is that some auspicious event is going to be taking place tomorrow. Yeah, it's I mean, this is masterful narrative technique here to end this section, begging us to wonder what is going to happen that is so important. And as much as I can't wait to see what is actually going to happen, I think we have a lot to talk about in our discussion. So let's get into it. Well, if our listeners couldn't tell from our, our recap, there were a few things in this story, I think, as I mentioned explicitly, that did puzzle me. There's a lot going on in these first five pages, and I'm sure we'll get answers to them as we go on. But because we're doing a close reading of this story, there are a few cataloging things I think we should get through, like we did in the first section of Fifth Head. But I'm going to go through them in a, in a strange order, so that hopefully we can make sense of what kind of story we are being told. And I think that that's the big question of a story by John V. Marsh. We're not told what kind of story. We know it's written by a character in the last novella we read, and we need to figure it out so we can make sense of what Wolf, the narrator of this whole trilogy of novellas, is, is trying to do. So I'm actually going to discuss the epigraph last to see if it sheds on any light on the story so far and what we come up with when we're looking at the other elements of the story that we've seen. 
The first thing we should do is just talk about the fact that this is a meta story. It is a story within a story by a character, as I mentioned, that we've only briefly met in the last novella. We can safely assume that it takes place on St. Anne due to the sister world being characterized by its blue color. And we know that this signifies the oceans of of St. Croix. The first thing I want to do, Glenn, is dig into what we already know about John V. Marsh to see if these facts tell us anything about what type of story it is. Here's what we learned from Fifth Head about John V. Marsh. He claims to be an anthropologist from Earth. He acknowledges that he spent several years on St. Anne before coming to St. Croix to take a position at the university. He maintains the scientific consensus that the Abos have been extinct for almost a century. He has an unusual appearance. His skin is so white that it might, according to the standards of St. Croix, constitute a disfigurement. And he's on St. Croix, at least apparently, to investigate Vale's hypothesis and anybody who's writing anything about the Abos of St. Anne. And as an anthropologist, he prides himself on the notion that he can find a place or a home in any culture. He's kind of uniquely qualified to do this. Those are the things I found about John V. Marsh. Glenn, I'd love if if anything else jumps to mind about this character for you. But just on what I said, do you think these facts tell us anything about what kind of story this is so far? One thing we should add to this catalog of the things that we know about John Marsh is that the narrator of The Fifth Head of Cerberus, number five, does accuse him of being an abo. Now, he offers no evidence of that, and it is to drive him from the room so that he can murder his dad. But that suggestion really does kind of at least stick in my brain and makes me wonder, is he actually an abo? And so that might be one of the ways that we read this story, especially given his name of John. And we're told here that all abo boys on St. Anne, or at least in that one group, this one culture, their boys are all named John. So perhaps this is a story of John Marsh's, Dr. Marsh's own native abo culture that he knows by virtue of being an abo. It might also be his story. Perhaps he is actually one of the two brothers in this story. He has changed his name for some reason, perhaps to mask his identity, to present himself as being a human on San Croix. But let's set that aside. I think that I want to not lean into that reading too much because the accusation that he's an abo is not really about even the question of whether or not he's an abo. Right. But Fifth Head is threaded through with this interest in the abos of St. Anne, somewhat inexplicably, especially when you consider that Fifth Head was written as a standalone piece, and the second two novellas were commissioned after it was already published. And so there is a sense in which perhaps Wolf had built that in to Fifth Head, not to write two other stories about St. Anne and St. Croix, but to make that accusation seem more powerful, because it definitely stands out in my mind as well. But I do think that we can take John Marsh's own story, the details he provides about himself, we can maybe give him the benefit of the doubt, take those for granted. And if that's true, this is perhaps a story about Abos that he learned on St. Anne, which while he's doing his work, his research as an anthropologist. But there is also the possibility that John Marsh is who he says he is, that he is a, a homo sapien from Earth. He is a professional anthropologist who is interested in abos, and this might just be a bit of fan fiction that he's writing about what he thinks abos might have been like based on 
the research that he's been able to do, inference he's making from artifacts that they have left behind, the sorts of things that we see replicas of in the library in Port Mimizan, stories he's been able to learn about abos that are recorded by the humans who first settled St. Anne, who had some interactions with abos. This might be the sort of first workings of Dr. Marsh's process of writing up a scholarly article or a monograph about the Abos of St. Anne in much the same way that the Lord of the Rings is Tolkien's process of working out all sorts of issues about what German philology tells us about the movement of Germanic-speaking peoples in the 5th and 6th centuries. So that might be happening here as well. Yeah, it is titled A Story, so I think we're meant to read it as a uh a sort of fictional narrative, though what level of fiction is a real question. You know, I want to suggest, I don't know if we talked about it much on the on the podcast before, but our notion of truth in terms of scientific study and empiricism and empirical reality is relatively recent in terms of history. And most of what people before then would have talked about in terms of truth came from these types of mythic stories that bound their culture together and taught them about how to interact with the environment and what was important in the world. And I think we see a lot of that in the world building of this story as well. I think two more things to say about what is this story that we're even reading. One, we should make clear that the phrase a story is in quotation marks. So it's a story by John V. Marsh, which indicates that John V. Marsh himself has labeled this a story. It's just it's just a story, but it's the it's official name. It's not the story of Sandwalker and Eastwind or anything like that. He is only calling it a story. The other thing that I want to say is, you know, you indicated that this is something that's been written down, but we don't actually have clear textual evidence that this is a document, a physical document, or you know, something on a computer screen that one can read. This could perhaps actually be a story that John V. Marsh is telling to someone else. Even if we take for granted that it is something that's been written down, it's not necessarily the case that John Marsh himself wrote it down. This might be a story that uh, John V. Marsh told to someone at a wine bar in Port Mimizan or a brandy bar in Port Mimizan, and that person has written this down, and that is how it has come to us. I think that there will be, as we go, some more interesting clues to the textual history of what this narrative is. I can't wait to get into that more, and I think the kind of metatextual elements of this story are really interesting and worth investigating, especially as we continue on. The next thing I want to do to really help us understand what type of story this is or what we can gain, what we can understand from asking the question, what story is John V. Marsh writing, is to look at what we've learned about the abos of St. Anne from David, the narrator's brother of Fifth Head, who I think has a little bit better read on the situation than the than the narrator does. So I'm going to read from pages 19 and 20 of the edition um, that we're using as a refresher. In this section of Fifth Head, Mr. Million is asking the boys, David and the narrator, what the Abos would have thought was important about their culture. David looks up from his book, his blue eyes scornful of both of us. If you could have asked them, they would have told you that their magic and their religion, the songs they sang and the traditions of their people were what were important. They killed their sacrificial animals with flails of seashells that cut like razors and they didn't let their men father children until they had stood enough fire to cripple them for life. 
They mated with trees and drowned the children to honor their rivers. This is what was important. And another piece of this section is that the narrator emphasizes that these were not humans. These are not of the stock of Adam. They're not terrestrial stock. So I want to ask you, Glenn, first, what you think that reveals to you about the story, about what we learn, and how what we see in the first five pages maybe complicate David's approach to this answer to the question. Well, I think the first thing that I want to say in response to your question and to bringing us back to the text of Fifth Head itself is that these people that we have met, even in just these first five pages of a story, are really strange. They're really different from who we are here in Philadelphia or really on planet Earth in the year 2018. And that's really, really fascinating. These cultures seem to be so rich and really interesting. I think if I was an anthropologist, I would be really eager to get to St. Anne and learn about these people as well. There are some really great parallels, even in just these first five pages, to what David says about who these people are and what's important to them. But I think there are also some contradictions or some complications. And maybe I'll just kind of go through it line by line here. So David suggests, the first thing he says is, magic, religion, songs, and traditions are important to them. I don't know that we're seeing magic. We don't have any singing yet. But we are definitely seeing traditions. And in fact, ritual is a word that is employed here. It seems that marking time is also very important to them, which suggests traditions or at least repeated actions, actions that get repeated on a yearly basis or a monthly basis, some kind of accounting system. And those things very often are taken to be religion. So I think we can maybe say that we are seeing here people being traditional and and religious, that their traditions and their religion are important to them. The next thing that David says is they killed their sacrificial animals with flails of seashell that cut like razors. And we do see sacrificial animals here in some sense. Animals are being killed and they are being offered to perhaps carrion creatures. Uh, Perhaps the carrion creatures that we met in Operation Ares have been transported to St. Anne here. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. I hope not. Uh, But we also are seeing that one of these creatures, a feigned pheasant, is being offered to the priest when Sandwalker gets to the cave. So that's turning out to be true. We haven't seen that that's been done with seashells, but East Wind is going to tomorrow blow a conch shell. So there is a seashell in just these first five pages. We then get here this suggestion that they didn't let their men father children until they had stood enough fire to cripple them for life. We've already asked whether or not men are even fathering children in this world, so maybe we'll leave that aside for now. But this stood enough fire to cripple them for life. We are told that last voice has been mutilated by not necessarily fire, but by heated metal or heated wood, actually it is, that his skull has been seared by this fire and that this is something that marks his station somehow. It might mark him as the teacher, but this also might simply be something that is done to all males when they are becoming adults. This might be a ritual of transition from boyhood to manhood among this culture. Right, especially if they want to father children, potentially, though we don't see any evidence of that yet. We do see this trial by fire in a very literal sense. Well, then we get this, they mated with trees and drowned the children to honor their rivers. And we don't have a child who drowns. We can safely assume Eastwood did survive and he's, he's alive and well at age 14. 
But there is a suggestion in your reading of what happens there at the river that perhaps he should have been drowned. Maybe it is that something happened to him, something different happened to him than should have been. But there certainly has been a drowning in this story so far. So I think we are seeing a lot of parallels, but also some some complications. So I think this is really fascinating. Yeah, I love it. I When I was going back and I, I really wanted to go through Fifth Head and find what we could about the abos in this conversation between David and the narrator and Mr. Million is really the best case we get of this in, in the first story. I want to suggest that these distortions here, and this is why, you know, in the first five pages, I thought the grandmother drowning might have been ritualized, is that these are distortions of the way these people on CNN live, the abos. And they're distortions for a number of reasons. One, this is coming from the, the mouth of a boy who's making suppositions based on his own interests in theodicy, uh, in his observations of the tools they used or replications of the tools they used that he sees in the library museum. But also it could be that as it has come to St. Anne, we're seeing a conflation of what could be many cultures. And I think that that's kind of the main thing that's going on here, is that there are actually two distinct cultures, at least in these first five pages that we see on St. Anne. One is going to be embodied by John Sandwalker, and one is going to be embodied by John Eastwind. And while I haven't read ahead, I can still imagine that this notion of skywalking, I want to say, but that <laughs> it's starwalking, right? <laughs> um, this notion of starwalking and the importance of astrology and the spirits of the sky and what they represent to at least Sandwalker's people as they are named. We don't know if these are universal names for the constellations, or it could be Eastwind's culture's names for these constellations, that there is uh, maybe could be a spiritual realm that Eastwind is participating in that is not manifest in the material world. Though I don't think that's the case, to be clear. It's just on these five pages, if you handed it to me blind, I might make that kind of leap. Yeah, there is a sense that there's astral projection or something happening, that what Last Voice is expecting Eastwind to do, what he's perhaps even training Eastwind to do, is to project his soul, or, or maybe we should say his consciousness, outside of the, the planet, out into space. This is why he's a, a star walker. What he's actually supposed to do with that, how this might work, totally a mystery at this point, but that seems to be the implication. I will also point out, though, that though we kind of glossed over it in the, the recap, that Sandwalker suggests that he expects to meet the priest, not in the waking world, but actually in his dream. And the word he uses there is ghost, which is just a Germanic word for spirit. So this also might be a kind of, not astral projection, but a kind of projection of your consciousness through some other means to another place and to another person. Both of these cultures seem to think that that's a, a thing that they can do. And I want to note here also something we didn't really highlight in the recap, that Sandwalker thinks of the priest as a as a ghost, a, a holy man for the people. It's a place where he's going to maybe come of age or learn his role in society a la, you know, the giver or something like that. Whereas Eastwind calls him an, an oracle. He calls the refers to the priest in his dream as an oracle where, where he's going to get some prophecy where Sandwalker is going to receive from some prophecy in the hill country. 
there's a lot to suggest that there are two really distinct cultures going on here. And I think we can say at this point, and I don't have the exact quote on me, so I hope our, our listeners will forgive me, but but Wolf has a real disdain for universal cultures on planets, like the way Star Trek does it, where they visit a whole planet and everybody on the planet has like the same culture. Wolf doesn't really like to play those games. His stories that are on the planetary scale are typically either very local and suggest there's more going on than in the story, or the planet has varied and it's a picaresque, as we see in Book of the New Sun. Book of the Long Sun has a little bit more of a uniform culture, but for different reasons, and in, in his other sort of space stories. So I think that's also something we can expect to happen here is that there are two distinct cultures we're going to see have events take place in this story. Eastwind's comment on this dream that he has had or this experience that he has shared perhaps with his brother is in some ways kind of anthropological language that he's using to describe to Last Voice. So this is an anthropologist perhaps telling a story in which other people are interacting with other cultures on an anthropological level, which is interesting, small bit of meta narrative uh, going on there. There's one more thing that I do want to point out, which is that although we get not a lot of agency and not a lot of direct causation in this narrative, which is all intentional on Wolf's part, there is at least the implication that the reason that Sandwalker is going to the priest in the Gorge of Thunder always is because he dreams strange dreams. So it doesn't seem that this is something that happens to all boys when they are approaching 14, but that because Sandwalker dreams strange dreams that he is demonstrating some ability or tendency to do something with his consciousness that he's being sent to the person who can teach him how to do that. And it might be that that is something that's important for this culture, that people know how to do these things. Not everyone can do it, but those who have the natural ability need to learn how to harness that because it's important for some reason. And it's certainly more important than his job as a food bringer. And it's so strange, again, that the reader has an immediate explanation for why this is taking place and has a mundane reason, though there may be some strange connection going on with the dreams. The fact of their dreaming is the result of them being twins who are separated. And so even though it is a mystical explanation, the reader is still, at this point, five pages in, provided with an explanation of the special gifting of these two boys. I think we're getting closer to kind of honing in on what type of story this is just from five pages, and I don't know if we can do that, but we're still trying. The next thing I want to do is just look at the story itself, look at the actual text before we get to the epigraph. We learn in the first five pages, and we brought a lot of this up at the recap, that women are named for nature, and that men are all named John, though they typically go by some sort of characteristic of their birth, east wind, sandwalker bloody finger, etc. The years are long, maybe as we suggested compared to Earth, but what comparison is Marsh really making here? And why is it important for him to beg the question, to leave that open? Is it natural to assume it's a comparison to Earth if he's writing this on St. Croix? The names for things, landmarks in the world, constellations, planets, are weirdly literal. They describe what is happening in the natural world when the planet is in a certain constellation. 
And those are kind of all the things that came up in the first five pages. So especially in light of the question that Mr. Million asks about what the Abos thought was important, what do you think is going on here? Does this clarify what we learn in this story compared with what we've learned in the past and about John V. Marsh, what we're supposed to be getting from this story? This business about the long years, the the relative comparison of how long it takes for one planet to orbit its sun, then it takes another planet to orbit its sun or a different sun, perhaps. That's really interesting. But one thing that we should say is that there is an authorial voice here. There is John Marsh, and there is also going to be presumably an audience. If he's telling this story to someone, if he's writing this as a letter to someone or is sending this to a journal back on Earth, there's an audience, and that audience will understand that the comparison is to Earth, I think. But if we get rid of that metatextual level and we just take that this is a third-person, omniscient narrative story, then this might be evidence that the abos themselves have some concept of how long a year is supposed to be and that their year is slightly longer, which would be an indication that abos are, in fact, some holy alien type of creature that can shapeshift and take on the consciousness or the, the mentality of some sort of the thing that they're trying to mimic and that these might be these strange aliens attempting to mimic humans. This could also represent a potential mindset of the Abos to have a sense of deference to maybe a dominant other planetary culture, where they understand that things ought to be a certain way because of a dominant culture that might be off-world. But their sense of it is that if they are a subdominant culture, that their experience is off because of the way things have been represented to them through the dominance of another culture, a colonizer, for instance. That's another potential reading of what's going on here. This insistence two times in five pages that the years are longer, done in this sort of omniscient yet passive voice, really does make us wonder longer than what? And since John V. Marsh is writing, I think this is a question I want to keep my eye on as we continue reading. Right. And one of these instances is coupled with a mention of spaceships. The, The line is, the years of his world where the ships turned back were long years. This is the colonizing ships from Earth. So it might be, as you suggest, that although Homo sapiens don't seem to be appearing in this story, they might only be 20 miles away from the hill country and that these people actually do have interaction with humans and do feel like they are the dominant culture. And perhaps, in fact, in true colonial fashion, the hill people weren't actually the hill people. They were the nice place to build a city people. Now they're the hill people because humans have shown up. But it is interesting that it does seem that these characters we're reading about have some knowledge of spaceships and that other people have come here. If we set aside the metatextual question, let's dig in on the second thing that you raised in this question, Brandon, which is what can we tell about these people from the names of the constellations and the planets? And they are, as you point out, strangely literal or strangely mundane, perhaps, right? That they're the shadow child, they're five flowers, seen seed, valley of milk, uh, lost wishes, I guess that's actually kind of an abstraction. Maybe seen seed is too. 
But I li- I'd like to think that these actually are figures from the stories that they tell, much like the names of our constellations are, you know, Orion, the constellation that I use to track my progress through basic training, you know, is, is a figure, right, from Greek mythology or from the religious stories or just the historical stories that that culture told. So I'd maybe presume that that's how this is functioning here, too. And it would be fun to, I don't know, maybe write a little bit of fan fiction uh, about what are the stories of the shadow child and the Valley of Milk, for example. And certainly calling the Milky Way the waterfall makes a lot of sense. Milky Way is actually a pretty dumb name, I think. I mean, there's the Valley of Milk, which is a constellation. It's a weird name for a constellation, but also the, the waterfall. This could be in our galaxy or not, you know, but these sorts of images are meant to tie together, to cohere, to give us this scope of the cosmos, of a galactic system and a solar system. And there's just so much going on here. I absolutely think you're right, that these names are supposed to be sorts of stories or important events throughout the year that the constellations and planets raise. And what's crazy is that we don't know which culture they refer to. It could be Sandwalkers, or it could be Eastwinds. Right, and presumably they have different names as well. I do want to point out one of the planet names that jumped out to me. The planet names are the Snow Woman, Swift, and Dead Man. Swift absolutely could just be the name of some figure, some person perhaps from the stories that they tell. But that could also very well describe a planet that is close into the sun and therefore moves swiftly across the sky. So this might be the one name that is actually about what they're observing and not a metaphor for what they're observing or imprinting a story that they're telling on what they see. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic observation. Before we get to the epigraph, which I keep on teasing as though it's the star of the show, and for me it really is, um, (laughs) because it's so crucial and all over the place in Fifth Head, and I just am puzzled by this one, though I think I have some answers. But I do want to bring up the other puzzle we're presented with, which is that all boys are named John. John Marsh is writing the story. We dissected the name Marsh in our coverage of Fifth Head, and and we said that it, it could be talk about a marsh itself, like it could just evoke the geographical feature. But we also mentioned that it is the, you know, close to the French and German words for march, which is really a motion that is focused on the motion of the feet. And my question is, I don't know if we can answer it, but is John Marsh John Sandwalker? I don't remember if we actually brought this up when we were having this conversation, but there's another meaning of this word that certainly jumps out to me, which is to see it as the word mark, meaning borderland, meaning a liminal space that adheres simultaneously to two different places, but also is a third distinct place. This might be a term that you could use for someone who has a foot in two different cultures, who has moved from one culture to another, a sort of border, a sort of boundary, or really a pathway between two different things. And if we're presuming that Marsh is really an abbo who is doing a great job of mimicking a human and is moving from St. Anne to San Croix. That might be a great way to to read that. Uh, But I think your suggestion of marching and we have someone here who is walking or at least who is a walker, a sand walker. The question of is John Marsh actually John Sandwalker, who is engaging in a little little bit of, of linguistic trickery here? 
That also might be true. I mean, I think that's a, a fantastic reading. Of course, none of these things could be true as <laughs> right. well. It's, so. it's, it's explicitly a fictional narrative, though, as I said, there's often truth in these sorts of fictions. And I think that's a bit of the game that's being played here. Let me press you on this. Right now, five pages in, do you have a feeling? Is John Marsh John Sandwalker? I want it to be true. I want to believe. I, I only have five pages of this story, but... It seems to me as you know the 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 feet beating on the sand. The first image we get of this child and the marsh being the word for march in in French and German. Maybe this is John Marsh telling his own sort of story. Well, we're at the epigraph now, so I just want to talk about it because I want to see if this finally gives us real clarity on the type of story that we are engaged with. The reason why I'm so interested in in what type of story we're reading is because it's an, it's a point of orientation when you're reading something. And I've seen a lot of people uh, who have read this story mention that they don't understand what's going on. And we might find that that's the case as we read this as well, that it needs that third piece, that VRT. But I also want to believe that Wolf has crafted a story that gives us enough information to really understand what he's trying to say, whether or not this is a standalone piece. But I think it is. It's a novella. And though it's in a trilogy of novellas, and though the third novella might shed light on this one, I want to encounter this as a story that ought to be able to stand on its own somehow. And knowing what type of story it is will orient us towards the right types of questions we need to ask and towards what we're meant to draw from it as a story as well. So now a little about St. John of the Cross. Glenn, you did a great job introducing him earlier uh, at the at the top of this episode. He is a Spanish ascetic monk of the Carmelite order. He was a Christian mystic, and he lived from 1542 to 1591. Christian mysticism is, roughly speaking, a practice within Christianity that seeks either ecstatic visions from God or Christ, as Teresa of Avila was really fond of receiving, or the idea that through some sort of activity, which is often really ascetic practices— self-deprivation. One can achieve a mystical union with God on this earth. And I think in this story, we already see more of the mystical vision stuff. But to me, this is the ecstatic vision element being played up here. But I think my gut is we're going to move into the mystical union element of this sort of practice. There's already like Kung Fu asceticism taking place in this story. As you said, Glenn, the epigraph comes from one of John of the Cross's great works, about asceticism and gaining closeness to God through privation, through self-deprivation. And this would enhance the experience of the spiritual world. And this work is called The Ascent of Mount Carmel. The lines of the epigram come from chapter 13 of the book, chapter 13 of book one of the book, which is explicitly about the activity as opposed to the passive nature where God is working on you without your action of what St. John calls the night of the soul. And this is a practice wherein you train yourself to desire God only through this sort of darkness. The lines in the epigram are a summation of the rules for ascending the mount and reaching the summit of union with God. And I'm going to read this and the closing words of this section of the work. The lines, the rules of ascending the mount are these. And it's a different translation than what Wolf uses. In order to arrive at having pleasure in everything, desire to have pleasure in nothing. 
in order to arrive at possessing everything, desire to possess nothing. In order to arrive at being everything, desire to be nothing. In order to arrive at knowing everything, desire to know nothing. In order to arrive at that wherein thou hast no pleasure, thou must go by a way wherein thou hast no pleasure. In order to arrive at that which thou knowest not, thou must go by a way that thou knowest not. In order to arrive at that which thou possessest not, thou must go by a way that thou possessest not. In order to arrive at that which thou art not, thou must go through that which thou art not. When the mind dwells on anything, thou art ceasing to cast thyself upon the all. For in order to pass from the all to the all, thou hast to deny thyself wholly in all. And when thou comest to possess it wholly, thou must possess it without desiring anything. For if thou wilt have anything in having all, thou hast not thy treasure purely in God. In this detachment, the spiritual soul finds itself quiet and repose. For since it covets nothing, nothing wearies it when it is lifted up, and nothing oppresses it when it is cast down, because it is in the center of its humility. But when it covets anything, at that very moment, it becomes wearied. And that's actually the end of book one of The Ascent to Mount Carmel. So I think there's a lot to unpack there, but at first glance, since we're not going to do a theological kind of exegesis of these lines, what does this add to your reading of the story so far? What do you think it can predict about the type of story that this could be? It's a great question. And that was a, a great reading of a huge mouthful of complex text there. So well done. I have really sort of two answers to your question. One is going to be referring back to the fifth head of Cerberus novella. And, and one's going to be focused a little bit more on what we have seen in just these five pages. The first thing that I'll say, and I, I kind of hinted at this in the, the recap, is that what's happening here in the ascent of Mount Carmel is about souls. You mentioned the the night of the soul or the dark night of the soul is a phrase that people will be familiar with from St. John of the Cross. That's the name of another work that he wrote that is wrapped up actually in the ascent of Mount Carmel as well. We did a lot of work thinking about souls in the fifth head of Cerberus. Wolf is begging us to do that thinking. He's invoking all of these literary allusions that are about souls. It is clear that Saint Croix, despite you know, being named Holy Cross is in fact hell. It is a prison for souls, but there's also a clear sense that people don't have them. There is the question of, does Mr. Million have a soul? Do Abos have souls? Does anyone on this planet of San Croix have a soul? It is clear that that is the string, the thematic string anyway, that Wolf is going to tug on here in this second novella about this world that he's invented. And we are seeing even here just in these first five pages that that's something that's important to these abos on St. Anne. They might be doing astral projection. They at least think that they're able to share their consciousnesses with each other in dreams. Dreams are very important to them. And all of that then, and this is going into the second point that I want to make, is, is suggesting that something that is of critical importance to them 
is separating or making a distinction between their mental life, their thought world, and their bodies. And that is something that's extremely important in St. John of the Cross. Everything that he's saying is about denying your bodily self, your corporeal needs and your corporeal desires, which are all things that are antithetical to the desires of our soul, right? We are all in a battle with our own bodies, which is by design in this theology. And we are being shown two primitive cultures here that both seem to have this same attitude, or at least to make a clear distinction between a bodily world and a a mental world or a spiritual world, uh, a, a mystical world. Pairing those two things together right now, just only five pages in. And of course, we're going to revisit this topic repeatedly as we're covering the story and in our wrap up episode. But right now, I think what these two things paired together suggest to me is that if St. Croix is hell, St. Anne might be another stage in the soul's journey to unification with God or to purging itself of its body. You make it sound like Wolf's Divine Comedy starring John V. Marsh. (laughs) So we'll see (laughs) if we can track this in VRT. I really appreciate those comments. I think you're absolutely right that both of these cultures are really caught up in the spiritual life in some way. And I think that even the naming conventions of these cultures that respect nature in this way are, are worshipful of creation, that the names evoke worship of the moment of birth as being sacred to the natural world. We also, I think, get examples of asceticism in this story. We have the priest who does not catch his own food, who might not even be alive, who might be amid the crumbling bones of the old sacrifices. At least Last Voice is alive in some sense, but he's the most monkish of characters I think we've come across in Wolf so far. And to me, I mean, this that whole thing just feels like kind of a great kung fu movie waiting to be made. Yeah, he's definitely a kung fu monk or uh, the types of Jedi we've been encountering in Star Wars lately. <laughs> right, right. So yeah, I think my prediction is we're going to be seeing more of this interplay of the soul being in the body or the soul existing outside the body. Whereas in Fifth Head, this was a story about souls being trapped explicitly, as we covered, I think, very well in our in our coverage of it. This is maybe the liberation of the soul. And John V. Marsh is our character who goes through all three planes. I'll be interested to figure out the timeline of these three novellas to see if John V. Marsh is actually descending into hell rather than ascending of Mount Carmel, so to speak. Yeah, that's a fantastic observation. And I hadn't thought about this as being Gene Wolfe's Divine Comedy either. But at at this point, I I think that does seem to be what he's doing. And and St. Anne then is going to be the purgatory part of this story. We're going to keep an eye on that as well. I think we did a pretty good job of trying to figure out what type of story this is, though we might not have given our listeners a conclusive answer. That's going to have to wait till we get a little further along. So that's going to be all for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of the first five pages of 
a story by John V. Marsh. Let us know what you thought of our discussion of whether or not this is a story set in a type of purgatory, whether we're going to learn more about the freedom of the soul and what is going on with all of these metatextual elements. We'd love to engage in a conversation about that with you. And before we go, a reminder that if you want to support the show and help us reach our goal of doing an episode every week instead of every other week, please check out our Patreon site and consider chipping in. Next time, we'll continue by reading pages 90 to 107 of the 1994 Orb Edition. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.